0: Welcome to the next episode of the Bymans Archives. I'm John Crocker, Managing Partner at Bymans. Today we're joined by Theodore Middleton to discuss the Reclaim These Streets case. Hi Theo, it's great to have you here.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Could you tell us a bit more about the case and your involvement?
1: In March 2021, so about a year ago, a woman called Sarah Everard was brutally attacked and murdered by a serving metropolitan police officer. Our clients were a group of local women who felt deeply affected by these horrendous events and wanted to organise a vigil in her memory and in opposition to violence against women. So they came together under the name Reclaim These Streets and announced this vigil. At the time, Various restrictions were in place under the coronavirus regulations, which included restrictions on large gatherings. So the police told our clients that if the vigil went ahead, that they risked fines of up to £10,000 and prosecution under the Serious Crimes Act, as they said that the vigil would breach the regulations. So we were instructed at very short notice just two days before the vigil was supposed to go ahead to challenge what the police were saying and to challenge this interpretation of the regulations, which said that, you know, that this vigil was going to be criminal and unlawful. And so we made an urgent application to the court, which was heard the next day, which was the day before the vigil was supposed to go ahead. And we were asking the court to clarify that The right to protest had not been eliminated by the coronavirus regulations and that the regulations could and should be interpreted in a way that meant that our clients might have a reasonable excuse for having a gathering if it was in exercise of their protected Article 10 and 11 rights, which are the rights to freedom of expression and assembly, which are sort of together taken as the right to protest. At that hearing, the police came along and said, oh, yes, of course, we absolutely agree with claimants. That's what we think, too. And so there's no point, court, in making this order that they're seeking because we all agree. So this is a waste of time. So the court said, okay, that's fine. We're not going to make the order. And we left the hearing and went straight into a meeting with the police and the clients where it quickly became apparent that despite what they had said in court, their position remained that the vigil would be unlawful and that our clients would be exposing themselves to criminal sanctions if it went ahead. These meetings went on late into the evening on the Friday night, but ultimately... Our clients felt that they had no choice but to withdraw from organising the vigil because it just seemed that there was no room for negotiation. The police weren't willing to consider any way that this vigil could take place that they would not think was going to attract criminal sanctions for our clients. A spontaneous event did go ahead on the Saturday, on the next day, and the heavy-handed policing of that event attracted widespread criticism there were shocking images of women being pinned down by police that ended up all over the papers on the Sunday our clients weren't involved with that event and they continued with their judicial review challenge which was then a challenge to the decisions that the police had made in those two days leading up to the vigil which prevented them from being able to to organize it and to participate in it. As these things do, it's taken a little while for the court to reach its decision on that. But a year on, the High Court has now held that our clients were right and that the police were acting unlawfully in preventing the vigil from happening. And that's because they failed to give any proper consideration to our clients' Article 10 and 11 rights. So those rights that make up the right to protest. And the court said uh, essentially that the police ought to have conducted a, a balancing exercise to consider whether it was proportionate to prevent our clients from holding this vigil. And, you know, one aspect of that being the sort of public health risk at the relevant time, that they should have conducted this balancing exercise and, and they didn't at any point. And that's very clear on the evidence that was put forward by the police themselves, as well as our experience of the days leading up to the vigil. So that's a bit about the case.
0: Well, thank you, Theo. What would you say makes the the case so significant?
1: The horrific details of Miss Everard's death aroused national outrage and distress and in that context the police's decision to prevent the vigil attracted a huge amount of attention and of public support for our clients and a strong sense of the injustice of the police's actions. I think the case is at an intersection of a few different issues including women's rights, protest rights, police violence and the corona virus regulations themselves. And as such, it touched a nerve with a very wide audience who felt very strongly that what the police was doing was wrong. But I suppose more broadly, the approach of the police in this case was far from being unique. The coronavirus pandemic saw systemic overpolicing of protests and a seeming disregard by the police for their duties to protect fundamental rights, including right to protest. So colleagues in other teams, including the police actions team and the crime team, have acted in numerous challenges over the past couple of years to these types of abuses. For example, there was a case of a nurse in Manchester who was issued with a £10,000 fixed penalty notice for her part in a protest against the 1% pay rise that was being offered to NHS workers. It was clearly completely disproportionate to treat her in that way, and that's just one example there's numerous examples of really appalling overreach by the police in their treatment of protest over the past couple of years so this judgment is obviously an important vindication for our clients and for all those who couldn't participate in this particular protest as a result of the police's actions but also for all of those who were subject to criminal sanctions for protesting throughout the pandemic.
0: What would you say makes the case cutting edge?
1: During the course of the pandemic, we have seen unprecedented restrictions on civil liberties and on ordinary daily activities. The fast changing nature of the regulations, as well as the clear public interest in containing transmission of the coronavirus have presented serious challenges in ensuring that the restrictions that we're being subjected to are not excessive and in holding the state to account when it does overstep the mark. The approach of the police, as I've said, to protest during the pandemic was really problematic, as we've seen in this case and in many others, Because they seem to have considered themselves to largely be absolved from the normal human rights balancing exercises that they might undertake in a protest context because of the presumed public health risk and therefore proceeding on the basis that protest is just going to be unlawful per se. So, this case is, I believe, the most significant judicial treatment of the approach that the police should take to enforcing the criminal law against protesters in the context of the coronavirus pandemic. And so it's it's cutting edge in that respect. And it also contributes to a current strand of case law, more generally around the interaction between the criminal law and protest rights. And there've been a number of decisions in higher courts recently that have looked at lawful excuse and reasonable excuse issues and how the police ought to interpret those to ensure that Articles 10 and 11 are at all times protected.
0: What sort of impact would you expect the case to have?
1: The basic principles in this case aren't new. So those being that, you know, that the police have to conduct these balancing exercises and that they have to protect and respect the Article 10 and 11 rights of protesters. These are not new ideas. But this decision is an important and timely reminder of those principles. At the moment, Parliament is... In the process of considering the police court sentencing and crime bill, which will give the police far greater long term draconian powers to suppress protest and introduce many more criminal offences and criminal sanctions that protesters may find themselves being subjected to. I hope that this case, firstly, might influence legislators who are thinking about awarding or entrusting these huge powers to the police to remind them that the police cannot be trusted to be the defenders of fundamental rights of protesters and they can't be trusted to use those powers in a proportionate way. Some people have said that some of the restrictions introduced during the pandemic were a bit of a litmus test for a general extension of powers to restrict protest. And as such, you know, we can only hope that this case shows that that test has failed the police cannot use these powers responsibly and proportionately on the other hand also you know it should serve as a warning to the police forces that whatever powers they are entrusted with by parliament and by the legislators they remain duty-bound to respect the human rights of the protesters and they can't simply rely on the fact that parliament has given them certain powers to restrict or sanction certain behaviour to presume that that means that that is the appropriate course of action in the given situation and that they don't need to do any further work to make sure that the rights of citizens are being protected.
0: Well thank you Theo, that's such an interesting case. Join us next time for another episode of Bindman's Archive.